when, when we were texting the other day about scheduling this, I was looking at, um, I was, I was like at like a park by the sound and I saw like a bunch of little otters swimming, uh, down on the coast. It was nice. Oh, yeah. and then it was interrupted by like, what gate can we record? What the fuck? So yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go on a Friday morning. You know? <laughs> no, it was nice. I was like super relaxed. I was just like, whenever guys, you just tell yeah. me when to be there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was thinking on the, on the drive over this morning, I was thinking like, should I say, uh, Welcome to Cafe Gauntlet. Because it's like, because <laughs> it's like Seattle. That's pretty funny. Do a little, do a little NPR shtick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm here with... Andrew Stasiulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a topic and the other two hosts pick movies in reaction to that topic. And we come on here and run the gauntlet and talk it out. Today's topic is Sleepless in Seattle. It's episode 16. And I asked my friends here to... Bring me films that take place in and around Seattle. That was it. Pretty much a, an open uh, Seattle-related prompt, of course, specifically because uh, our dear friend here, Ryan, has recently moved to the Seattle area. And that's what we got today, a nice little Seattle double feature. So let's uh, get it going. Andy, why don't you tell us what you brought first? Uh, well, I've only ever experienced the city of Seattle through its airport. Uh, I've never actually been inside the city proper, just the airport. So my personal knowledge of the city of Seattle is, I would say, uh, rather limited. However, I've seen quite a few films that do take place in Seattle. And uh, I chose... I wouldn't say one of the best, but one that I find very amusing uh, for reasons we'll get into today, especially with the pairing, uh, but I'm already getting ahead of us. Uh, So I chose John Sturgis's 1974 film McHugh, starring the one and only John Wayne. So the Duke plays a detective, a Seattle police detective in McHugh uh, by the name of Lon McHugh. However, it's abbreviated as McHugh with the letter Q. Uh, And he plays this sort of like grizzled old police detective who discovers one day that his uh, beloved partner was murdered. And uh, he, of course, personally injects himself into the investigation because he's sure that his partner was gunned down mercilessly, uh, most likely by this sort of 
a nefarious figure known as Santiago. The import-export king. Yes, the importer-exporter Santiago, played by Al Latiri. Is that how you pronounce his name? I never know uh, with him. But uh, anyway, he, he throws himself headfirst in the investigation, sure that this is drug-related, that his partner was, was, you know, he had uncovered something about Santiago, and Santiago had him executed. Of course, things aren't always what they seem in the old city of Seattle. So along the way, during his investigation, he basically uncovers corruption. Corruption that leads right back to the police department itself. This, of course, then sends McHugh on a vendetta to find anyone and everyone related to the murder of his partner and this corruption scandal. And he sort of goes, goes hell-bent as only the Duke Wayne can. It's a pretty standard policier, you know, uh, but it's one that I think is very amusing in the career of John Wayne as he's trying to transition out of westerns and into the gritty cop films of the 70s. Um, you know, part of why he made this film, uh, supposedly, if you believe the story, is that he was originally offered the role of Dirty Harry Callahan in uh, the film that would star Clint Eastwood. But supposedly Wayne turned the role down and then after seeing what a hit Dirty Harry was, regretted it. Um, And as I dug around and did a little more research, I found out that originally Dirty Harry was supposed to be set in Seattle. But then when Clint got on board, he was like, come on now, we're doing doing San Fran. Bringing it to the Bay. Yeah, so Clint brought it to the Bay, to San Francisco. And then, you know, John Wayne was like, damn, I, I really blew it. I, I should have done Dirty Harry. Uh, and then found this vehicle with John Sturgis to, uh, to dip his toe into that, you know, hard-boiled 70s Nixon-era kind of, you know, rule-breaking cop, you know, renegade cop. So that's the film that I brought to the table. All right. And Ryan brought uh, another policier uh, but of a different kind. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, it, it certainly is of a, of a very different breed than um, McHugh. And I think one of the best ways to talk about Police Beat is actually sort of in response to the summary of McHugh, I would say. So Police Beat is a film from 2005, directed by Robinson DeVore. And with McHugh, you have a film where the policeman is personally injecting himself into the investigation and into the crimes. But with Police Beat, we have an officer who, dealing with his own relationship issues, sort of removes himself personally from all of the crimes he's encountering. So much so that he, in not reacting at all, the crimes themselves seem like they're reflecting his inner state because the external world for him just doesn't mean anything. He's just like riding around on his bicycle and visiting all these different happenings throughout Seattle. 
So the film, in one way, is a look at the immigrant experience in America. The police officer, who is a bicycle cop in the city of Seattle, is from Africa, presumably Senegal. It's never said explicitly, but he is talked about as being a soccer player, and his narration is in Wolof. And as he's riding around and encountering everyone, he is also reflecting on his girlfriend, Rachel, who was out on a camping trip with a suspicious man named Jeff, or at least suspicious in the eyes of our hero police officer. And even as depraved as many of these encounters get uh, on his beat, he still can't help but only think of his girlfriend on this camping trip, and to the point where he even starts to wonder, whoa, why do people even go camping? It all just seems like such a bad idea. It's a really beautiful film. It captures the city in an incredibly unique way. It, it, the whole thing, you know, we've, we're following this journey for six days and seven nights with our hero who's named Z as he's riding around. But the main character of the film, you know, without sounding like a fool, is, you know, the city itself, right? It, Seattle is uh, the centerpiece of this film, and specifically Seattle um, in the middle of the Bush years. You know, it's very much a film from 2005, and it, because you spend such brief encounters with all these different crimes, I think there's about 40 crimes that are present in the film um, in its 80-minute runtime, it ends up being this incredible like tapestry of the city um, and all of its denizens and the way that they're responding to the world around them. But yeah, I think I'll leave it at that because we'll probably go into more detail with the specific crimes and sort of how they relate to that overall thread as we go through it. But that's Police Beat from 2005. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm similarly to Andy, uh, I've, I've never been to Seattle. I've experienced it through such motion pictures as singles and, uh, the occasional Frasier episode, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, you know, just sort of looking at it from a distance and, and I do think these films really play with the landscape of the city in very interesting ways. Uh, in different ways, but they really do, both films feature a lot of verticality, a lot of hills, a lot of steepness, and like shot in, in very interesting ways. Sunsets, bridges, water. There's all these sort of elemental things about Seattle that are visually represented in, in both films and very well at that. But yeah, and then of course there's, yeah, they're, they're both cop films and there are also, yeah, <laughs> I, I was laughing, you know, know because radicals quote unquote sort of you know are this boogeyman in both films to a certain extent because of course that's sort of Seattle tradition right right we have one film with John Wayne who is like sort of like the canonical American icon of cinema right and then here we have uh, a West African immigrant police officer who at the same time is very much holding on to a conservative idea of America. He's a he believes in law and order. He believes in the sanctity of being a police officer and solving problems for the people of Seattle. He talks about attending a American president's class or at one point if someone threatens the life of George Bush in their, you know, fer fervent radicalism, he says if you are threatening George Bush, you're 
by default threatening me as someone who represents the law. And it's interesting to hear, you know, similar outlooks on the law from people that you would typically consider to be, you know, as far away as possible from each other ideologically, right? Like the immigrant coming to America and John Wayne of all people. Right. You know, John Wayne, it's 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 well documented his views on uh, you know everything, everything. <laughs> but specifically, I'm I'm referring to that like notorious Playboy interview of like 1971, where mm-hmm. John Wayne more or less said that he believes in white supremacy, right? And uh, one of the things that he was saying, and and he had said in other interviews, was you know that uh, the minority groups uh, they need to stop seeing themselves as hyphenated Americans, but as Americans themselves, just Americans. And it's interesting because you, you bring up that point and, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's there that Z, the cop from Police Beat, is for the Duke, for John Wayne, that sort of like ideal immigrant, right? He comes to America, he respects its laws, he's working hard to make himself a valuable member of society, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, right? So I think it's I think it's interesting to bring that point up that in an odd way, <laughs> Z in Police Beat is, you know, for John Wayne, this this sort of like image of an immigrant that he wishes more people uh, you know, believed in or or strived for. Yeah, there's a great moment in Police Beat when Z is, you know, he's having all these internal struggles, and he and he goes on a bridge over over a, over train tracks, and he grabs, you know, the chain link fence, and he's just screaming to no one in particular. He says, uh, "Comes from Africa, has a green card, two car payments left, desires to be a fast reader, takes an American president's class, plans to." Purchase a building on Federal Way. An apartment building. <laughs> An apartment desires, building. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. And it's key, right? He desires to be a landlord. That's right. Like John Wayne would especially love that. Like, that's like truly the American dream, yeah. you know? And he says uh, most women would find that to be an attractive man mm-hmm. as he's having insecurities about his uh, relationship. The Duke know. certainly would. <laughs> But yeah, he he does, I think, come to some startling conclusions about uh, this country towards the end of the film, but we can hold off on that. I think it's interesting that, you know, again, just sort of like reading up a little bit on Seattle being totally unfamiliar with it in many ways and realizing that, yeah, like since Police Beat was made, the city has like transformed dramatically and one thing that i found interesting was from 1974 to the early to mid 2000s is that it it seems kind of like consistent in its shape uh in that period of time whereas the landscape yeah you know there's a lot more buildings it's a lot more expensive there's a lot more people there now since um police beat came out but i did find it fascinating that like i didn't detect too much sort of like you know, topological differences uh, in the 30 years that separate these movies. No, absolutely. I agree. And it's funny, you know, now uh, being in the area, right, I would even go as far to say as as I've been here now for a couple weeks wandering around, there's still not a ton of differences in terms of just the layout of everything. Um, There's certainly a lot more 
people. That is, you, you, you can't contest that. Um, I was like laughing during one of the car chases in McHugh, thinking about how they could even possibly pull that off now with the the way the traffic is out here. It's just like <laughs> ludicrous. And even then, there's even like a gag in McHugh where he does sort of get stuck between like different cars on the highway and then loses track of the the person or the group of men that he's chasing. But yeah, no, in terms of like portraits of the city, I think they both capture a very similar quality. Like it's it's very clear that both of them are, you know, have like a large amount of regional appeal and are covering similar ground. We get ports, we get, yeah, we get like big bridges, um, a similar like look at the buildings and the parks inside Seattle itself. I guess the big difference then is the interiors, because we should point out that McHugh is uh, peak 1970s. It's like every interior is yellow or brown or white, uh, and it's kind of like horrific looking on the inside, whereas, yeah, Police Beat has a more sort of like, we're going into like, for these crime reports, you're seeing like people's homes a lot, and it's very bourgeois, very modern, very, yeah, like glass kind of uh, aesthetic as opposed to the sort of like, yeah, the brownish uh, hue of mm-hmm. those interiors. Yeah, I guess you could compare it with like, you know, the, the naturally being from 1974, McHugh, so many of the interiors look like Columbo sets yes. too with kind of like orange gross carpets. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, like it immediately, like, because the exteriors are, the light is so stunning in McHugh in the exteriors. Um, yes. Just because I think working with Seattle and like the the changes in weather that it doesn't have that like Los Angeles sheen Every, like all the exteriors have like a very unique look to them for like scene to scene basically it's like constantly changing um, but yeah w- whenever we're in an interior it feels like we're in a Columbo set and then you know on the other side with police beat you know you talk about how it's very bourgeois and there's like all, there's so much glass but I think it's also worth pointing out that we get a ton of like very down to earth apartment interiors. We get to see a lot of, I mean, specific, you know, we've got a lot of crime scenes. We've got a lot of drug use or just like, you know, lower income crimes too. We, yeah, we get to see a lot of like that. I also think one of the funniest moments in police beat that feels like it very much has spoken to my experience out here so far is the sequence where Z, the police officer fishes out that, like kind of passed out drunk man from the tree and as he like takes him down the ladder the guy who originally called him says like hey i think there's like a couple bottles up there like can you go get them i'll recycle them right now (laughs) and let me tell you they they are the recycling freaks up here (laughs) and i mean that's like a nice thing but boy oh boy i mean just the amount of um I guess I probably shouldn't be like calling up my new landlord on the pod, but the <laughs> amount of conversations that we've had about recycling and the process and the plant and how we're supposed to handle the recycling, it it's very different than Chicago, where uh, y- you essentially assume each bin is just going to the same place. <laughs> I don't assume. I know it's going yeah. to the same place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, I guess that's, you know, that's an element of police beat. This is a film, I'd seen it a long, a long while ago, and I loved it when I saw it, and so I was really glad you picked it, Ryan. But one thing I was thinking is, like, I, I guess I didn't remember how much of it really is kind of a satire of 
Seattle and poking mm-hmm. fun at the certain types of people that populate Seattle and specifically certain types of white people that populate Seattle because we do get a pretty big spectrum of uh, views expressed and attitudes expressed from angered liberals who want to murder Bush to uh, white supremacists breaking into or, you know, entering people's homes and saying ominous things about Cascadia. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of all sorts of little details here that I'm sure I only uh, half get uh, as an outsider. Well, they all happen so fast. I mean, I think it's worth just the experience of watching. It's incredible how it's just like moment after moment. I mean, all these crimes are like jam packed in here. And if anything, the only thing we can hold on to are his insecurities about his relationship. Because even if we're these scenes are already so brief, but they're usually bookended by him speaking about his own anxieties over them. So sometimes they sort of just end up being images of crimes. Right. And we don't even get to hear specifics or any of the details. Or see resolutions or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's presented in um, a very different way. Like crime is presented in a very different way than it is in something like McHugh. In in McHugh, uh, the whole plot, the whole investigation is just uh, uncovering the context for this opening crime, his partner being sort of gunned down. And should also point out that there's a little prelude to that. His partner isn't innocent. We at the audience, uh, we in the audience are privy to to a little bit more context than even McHugh has. Like, we open with this character um, who's sort of this grizzled older guy and he's sitting in a car and then he himself guns down to police officers. And so we're immediately like, oh shit, you know, this, we got a cop killer on the loose. And then after he like steals this uh, leather bag from this uh, you know, sort of like evidence depot, uh, he goes to a diner and he's sort of collecting himself. And then he like moves his jacket, his, his blazer aside. And we see that he himself is wearing a police badge. So we learn that this cop killer is himself a cop and then he is gunned down. So we have like three cops dead in the opening, including the cop that killed the other cops. So the whole film then is, is trying to provide the context for this, this, this crime that we saw. Uh, and, and that's what the, the action is. That's what the plot is. It's, it's filling in all the gaps and the holes so that, you know, we understand this crime, where it came from, where all crime comes from. But police beat is quite the opposite. We don't get any context for the, at times, humorous things we see, and at times the really horrific things that, that we, along with, you know, Officer Z, uh, encounters and experiences. And they're these two very different generations of approaches to crime. And I think like understanding crime, uh, one being, you know, this sort of like post Nixon, Gerald Ford, American law and order approach to crime. And the other one being the sort of Bush 9-11 and hellscape of America crime, where <laughs> crime is just a thing that, as we've maybe discussed before on this pod in other ways, like a result of of class tension, of economic disparity, of all these things that 
you can't easily solve as a as a dedicated police officer, right? That it's it's this thing that sort of spirals and swirls around uh, us, cities, towns, countries, states, and of course individuals. Yeah, I, I think you couldn't have said it any better. I mean, McHugh is is this process of like peeling away the layers of an onion and like kind of giving you a blueprint for how the entire plot of the film works. You know, there's so much time set aside where they're like going over tiny little details and figuring out exactly how the web functions. And then Police Beat, you get even if they attempt to give you any sort of context for the crimes, they're usually even perplexing. Like one of the first ones I think of is that guy on the bridge who presumably wasn't saw a wounded bird. So his solution to that was to rip its head off, and then everyone else, you know, panics. And- so, please step away from the bird. The bird was in pain. That bird was not you in pain. You had no right to do that to me. That's not true. Stop. I wish I had a gun. You had a gun, but I saw it. You put the bird's head on it. Slow down. I took it behind that newspaper box out of everybody's way. And I pulled the head off with my hands. You know, our officer, the only option he can think to do is sort of tell him to leave and then wrap up the bird and some newspaper and stuff him in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And if anything, <laughs> too, his his own authority kind of feels meaningless at times. Z in police beat. A he 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 himself feels ineffective in a variety of different scenarios. Oh yeah. You know, like or even after he announces his authority. Yeah. You know, he he's being accosted in his car and then he's like, hey, like cut it out i'm a police officer and they're like i don't give a fuck yeah the rockabilly guys get out of the car bitch i'll I'll fuck you up i don't care if you're a cop (laughs) and then you know and then in McHugh, right his his authority is like so pervasive that even after it's like even briefly called into question he's like well i'm just gonna resign and take care of this myself well and it also reflects just the the difference between the experience of a beat cop and the experience of a detective certainly right Mm -hmm. because police beat has this sort of like fragmented like you're just encountering people all day you're writing reports and then you're kicking it upstairs or you know come pick this guy up or come do this you're not seeing anything through you're not following up on any of this you're just constantly responding to these little incidents whereas the detective has this like yeah this story uh to tell and uncover uh as McHugh tries to find out who's selling and stealing dope on the on the streets of Seattle. And Eddie Albert, the captain, is certain it's the goddamn radicals. Yeah. But uh, it's not. Yeah, that, that's great. You know, in McHugh, we, we open with uh, this crime that we discussed. And, and, of course, you know, McHugh then is, is trying to solve it. But, yes, as Marsh is pointing out, Eddie Albert, who plays his captain, which, by the way, you know, when Eddie Albert shows up in a cop movie like this in a three-piece suit, like, my radar is just, like, going off. It's like, it's that's the guy. He's the guy. Eddie Albert in a three-piece suit. Like, <laughs> he's a villain for sure. Um, but he is already, like, instantly butting heads with McHugh. And McHugh's like, no, I think it's related to Santiago and this drug deal that, you know, went wrong or went bad. And Eddie Albert has the, the Seattle police... They like just just roust a bunch of, quote, radicals, you know, these leftists, and they throw them all in a police van, drag them down to the station, and uh, they're trying to give them the, the, you know, the fifth degree or whatever. Uh, But what I love in that scene, too, is uh, then, you know, 
John Wayne's character, McHugh, is is trying to tell Eddie Albert, like, hey, you're wrong, you know? And Eddie Albert's sitting there in, like, the police cafeteria, and he's like, no, it's these radicals. Can you believe them? And I love the line, like, Eddie Albert, when he's referring to, like, this, this like, room full of radical leftists that he has, and he goes, you know how I feel about this? I saw the hallways. Garbage. Garbage. The whole place smells like rotten cheese. We're gonna have to fumigate. You know, like, I love that bit, you know? And again, it's this, like, for, you know, John Wayne and for the America of that that era, right? It is this, like, immediate sort of politicization of, of things, you know? And again, going back to, like, Nixon and going back to Nixon era and this idea that, you know, there, Nixon tried to draw this connection between crime and the left, crime and, you know, uh, what we would call progressive ideas, but but Nixon was always trying to draw the, the direct connection there, which to me, on a certain level, makes McHugh a very kind of interesting film because it isn't purely a law and order film because it's also about corruption, corruption that leads back to the police themselves. And for Wayne, as you mentioned, like his character, he, whether it's the the politics or as he says, the red tape, the bureaucracy of solving crime, he decides to like, at a certain point, walk away from yeah, it. He yeah, he goes renegade. Very quickly in the film. I mean, it's, it's in the more or less like first act of the film, I guess you could say, that he throws his badge and gun on the table and is like, not too much red tape, I'm out, I'm on my own. And then in the following scene is immediately certified as a private investigator, which I was kind of laughing about, like how easy yeah. it is to get certified. as a, He's just like back on the beat, right? And it, it, it's also kind of an amusing gag because when he turns in his badge and gun, it it, it begins this, this series of gags that gets replayed throughout the film of how many times uh, John Wayne gets his gun taken away from him. He gets his gun taken away from him on like three different occasions. And then in the following scene is immediately producing another gun. <laughs> I love it. Just, in like, fact, a scene where it shows him like after he's had his gun taken away two or three times, he he's just in a gun store. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, and yeah. so guys like, what are you doing? And he's like buying a gun. This one. <laughs> and he just puts it in his holster. He's like, no waiting period. Like, I love it. And then that guy is like, hey, I want to show you something. Come into the back. And then, and this is, of course, you know, one of the, the famous, uh, I guess, like, you know, scenes or or flourishes of this film. But uh, he, he's in this gun store and John Wayne is taken into the back room and there's a guy that's showing him this new wonder weapon, yes. the Ingram Mac 10 submachine gun. And he's just like, hey, look at this look at this submachine gun. We're, we're trying to get military and police contracts out of it. Hey, you want to take a spray? And he hands him this like submachine gun. And they're just in like a back room of a gun store. And the Duke's like, looks great to me. And just unloads <laughs> this like fully automatic submachine gun. And the guy's like, yeah, pretty cool, huh? And then he's like, I'll take it. And he just puts it in a bag. And the guy's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to borrow it. And he just walks out. <laughs> he's like, also, it's not legal. Yeah. He goes, he goes uh, it's not licensed. And then the dude goes, neither am I. And then just strolls out with a submachine gun. <laughs> I love it. And that, folks, is what we call Chekhov's Mac 10. Because yeah. that shit is going to pop off in the climax. Oh, yeah. That that sequence is very aesthetically similar to the Q sequences in the Bond films. Um, not to have another Bond, Bond alert, alert here. Yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, the moment he st- stepped into the back room and they had like everything set up for tests, I was like, Here shoot we this go. Uh, like, garbage can full of water. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. But you know, it was a, a relatively new weapon at the time, and it, it should be pointed out for those who don't know, Hollywood has often been uh, throughout its its history, and certainly more of its modern history. Uh, basically like a a, a marketing playground for gun manufacturers. There are a lot of guns that are new to the market that first get introduced actually through Hollywood films. And part of the idea is that it makes them look cool. It makes them look badass. It makes them look impressive. And so on a certain level, like in this film, you basically have an advertisement for the Mac 10. Uh, what better way to advertise your weapon than to hand it to the fucking Duke and let him like take down a bunch of bad guys with it. And of course say, yeah, every cop in America should be armed with a Mac 10. <laughs> Look how effective it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, a, a, I, I would say it was like a pretty impressive, like display of, of this firepower. How realistic it is, is, is not, you know, I think, uh, the issue here, but but look, only a few years later, Carpenter would would use the exact same weapon mm-hmm. for Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. He's got a Mac Ten suppressed, the same weapon with a hilarious sniper scope on it. Of course, that wouldn't actually work, but you know, it's it's a sort of iconic weapon as it as it as it was introduced here and would become in the the minds of so many Americans. And and uh, I think this film is one of the earlier examples I can think of that where there's like a really direct advertisement yeah, advertisement yeah. for for a weapon. And that's not the only thing advertised in the film as John Wayne drives his green hornet around Trans-Am. Mm-hmm. the Trans Am and it is like the sickest car. It is incredible. Yeah, and it's it, it should be like for those who would watch this film or those who've seen this film and kind of go like that kind of reminds me of bullet right like yes. McHugh is essentially trying to cash in on some of the the gritty police films that had been made in the late 60s and early 70s westerns weren't big box office draws they were sort of on the the downward tick uh, as far as Hollywood was concerned and a lot of actors who had started in westerns when this was you know the action genre for so many American stars they they started transitioning to to cop films uh, you have Steve McQueen and Bullet who's driving around in the green Mustang and and you know spiraling through the streets of San Francisco and and has a great car chase and a lot of the producers in Hollywood they they starting with Bullet particularly it was always like how do we beat Bullet how do we how do we one up Bullet we got to do that you know uh, so here you've got John Sturgis, who is really at the end of his career. This is the second to last film he made. Uh, And and Sturgis has a great career of making some of the most, you know, beloved action-adventure films in Hollywood history, two of the biggest being, of course, The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. But, like, here... It's very clear to me that, yeah, they're taking this lead from these other gritty cop films, but it's just so creaky by comparison. Yeah. They don't mm-hmm. have the aesthetic to back it up because it's it's this very stead, locked down, cinemascope, old Hollywood kind of approach. There's no handheld. There's no... John Wayne can barely move. Yeah. As He's well. like 68 years old when he made this movie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, you know, I was thinking about how you, you know, you brought up the connection that he really wished he had taken the role of Dirty Harry. And it's funny seeing, 
Wayne move around physically in McHugh and imagine him trying to pull off so much of the Clint's nimbleness. He couldn't do it. No, he's, he's yeah, he simply couldn't do it. Wouldn't be possible. Yeah. I mean, just to see the shots of John Wayne like getting in and out of cars in this movie or just oh, like yeah. attempting any sort of quick motion, it's it's you know, there's it's a very cut comedic. of him getting out of a car. That's how you know it's fucking bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like and it, he he kind of struggles getting out of that little green hornet trans am you know that thing's a little low mm-hmm. to the ground for for an old john wayne who's already lost one lung to fucking cancer but yeah and i think you know you talking about the but both like the relationship this film has to crime and then like authority and then also being a response film for typical action films from the time and it, it does seem to be taking like a little bit of a lead from dirty harry in that sense too where he's, you know, there is corruption from within and, you know, he's a man that represents law and order or at least a very specific idea of the law so much so that he becomes at odds with the bureaucratic nature of law and how he finds it completely ineffective. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually kind of relates to our namesake. It's a similar kind of structure of the film The Gauntlet. You know, another, there's actually quite a lot of Clint connections, I would even say, (laughs) while while watching this, it has that, the the front half of McHugh has that relaxed Clint vibe. Uh, like I, I found the film very just relaxing to move through. Part of that is just the old man energy, which I do enjoy yeah. in like action films, is the taking his time, kind of you know wandering through the cafeteria and on, on the shag carpets, just like going slow. Yeah, everything is so nonchalant. It's very yep. very chill. Yeah, he's never like raising his voice or even, anything. Even just... in the opening, because we're introduced to McHugh, John Wayne's character. Uh, on his houseboat, you know, he lives in a houseboat, which to my mind, Sunny I was like, rocket vibes. I, yeah. And I was like, is this like the first example in Hollywood of the, the trope of the cop living on a boat? You know, and I was right. trying to think of like earlier <laughs> films. I couldn't really. So I was like, maybe, maybe the Duke started the cop living on the boat thing, but he wakes up on his little like boat that he, that he lives on. He big divorce on. energy. Yeah. yeah big, yeah, that's yeah, what I was big divorce too. energy. Uh, and he seems very hungover and he gets up and they're like, you know, Hey, your, your partner's been killed or your partner's been shot. You got to get down to the hospital. And he's like, all right. And he, he gets up and he, he like gets off of his boat and immediately, Upon waking up and like, you know, getting onto the dock next to his boat, uh, a guy just jumps out of nowhere and takes a shot at him. Uh, But that's after he sees a guy trying to steal his car. So like the minute he wakes up within the first like five minutes of of like emerging from his like hangover, he sees a guy steal trying to steal his car that he, he runs off and then an assassin takes a shot at him. He then very calmly turns and guns down the would-be assailant, just like, just shoots him in the back. And then there's a witness that that he kind of sees, and he's like, I need you to stick around for the report, you know? And he's like, tell him what you saw. And the guy's like, oh, uh, well, I saw you shoot that guy. And he's like, what'd you see before that? You know, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, he had a gun. Uh, yeah, he had a gun. He's like, great, I'm going to get this tape recorder. And you're going to tell. And he goes to his trunk and pulls out a fucking tape recorder. And he's like, immediately, like, get the statement down. Like, make sure this is a clean shooting for me. But it's all handled so matter-of-factly. So, you know, like you said, like mm-hmm. old man energy. Like, it's just another day. 
Yeah, like in our very first image of him too, as you were saying, is like when his phone's ringing, it's like is just his arm like trying to find the phone and like climbing very slowly out of the houseboat. And then he realizes his phone line isn't like connected properly. So he needs to get out of the boat. And he's just like his muscles are clearly like a bit tight and sore. He hasn't done his morning stretches yet. <laughs> but then, of course, when he's called into action, you know, he, he can handle himself. He's a professional. He's trained. Yeah. And as the witness does say... And this other guy started shooting at him, see? And then the first guy blasted him. You know, it was a hell of a shot. <laughs> right when he guns down the guy. I mean, think about this guy's life, because then he, he goes to work to find out what how his partner was killed, and he gets to, he gets to work, and there's all these hippies, and they're like... Hey, McHugh, what is this asinine police crap? This is illegal yeah, arrest, man. man. This is unconstitutional, okay, and you damn well know it. Well, this whole damn place is coming down, you know that? You pigs are gonna be out of work, but don't worry about it. We'll put you on welfare. That's all your stinking job is anyway. Come on, pig, shoot me. Pull your piece and blow me up right here. What's the matter, no guts? Chicken, huh? Oh! And uh, he takes one of the hippies and just punches, you know, just yeah, like- Roughs him up. Yeah, roughs him up. So like, he's like constantly being besieged by belligerents, you know? It is this very like, yeah, like, paranoid white guy kind of like situation and he handles it so coolly yeah well i mean honestly like the film has a lot of pleasures for you know some of the very weak aspects of the film i found it to just be like texturally and compositionally just an extremely enjoyable movie to watch Mm -hmm. i liked the colors i liked the framing i liked the the grain i liked how slow and boring it was Mm -hmm. um and as you know as someone said to me on twitter uh when junk was high art. Yeah. Uh, and I honestly feel like there's an element of that, you know? There is something kind of like high art and beautiful about this just totally stupid, you know, Nixon-era cop movie, right? Absolutely. I mean, and it's, again, like comparing it to something like The French Connection, right? Where, you know, Friedkin wanted to be like, you know, this should feel like we're just uh, journos running around following these guys, almost like a documentary, and it's got to be gritty and ugly and nasty. And this is like a very, like, beautifully shot film. Yeah. Do you think John Sturgis knew what cinema verite was? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's no, no indication that, that he did. Not at all. And it does have this, you know, and for me, again, I think part of the reason why I chose this and why I I have this, this I really do have this fascination with John Wayne as a figure. And, and it's so funny when you go through interviews and, you know, you see people talking about him and you know anything about John Wayne. Like, he is a, a very despicable person in a lot of respects, certainly <laughs> politically, right? And, and what's funny is you'll see all these interviews with, with actors talking about their experiences working with him. And so many of them say the same thing. They're like, man... His politics are disgusting, and I I think, politically speaking, we couldn't be farther apart. But man, what a pleasure to work with him, the consummate (laughs) professional, you know? And in a way, in a way, like, you know, he, to me, is the ultimate symbol of, like, the right and of, you know, Republican America, But, but this sort of, like... I don't know, this, this weird thing of, 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 you know, their, 
they're like racist and they think crime is just simply because people are are belly acres and whiners and stuff like that, you know, and they just don't work hard enough and all this kind of crap. But, you know, there's this like this earnestness there that for John Wayne somehow still for me is just so... I, I don't know. It's He's so... got a star quality. It's proven. Yeah, yeah. Where it's true. Where you're kind of like, I hate everything about it. But sometimes you're just kind of like, ah, uh, you know. And it's like Clint, right? I mean, Wayne and Wayne sort of like handed the mantle to Clint Eastwood. You know, whether you know directly or intentionally or reluctantly. I mean, like you can make the argument, right? But like this is that period where Clint Eastwood starts to really supplant him and surpass him as you know the symbol of the right and of republican america and you know or at least like traditional american masculinity yes yes exactly you know and yet for me like the really late john wayne movies like this like brannigan (laughs) the cowboys you know like there's just something so elegiac about his presence for this you know classic america that was dying on the vine. And yet the only person like who didn't see it was John Wayne, you know, like he is the fucking true believer, maybe the truest believer in like American cinema history for this, like idea of America, the beautiful, you know, God bless her. Why I love her. Why I love her. Yeah. And like, you know, I I think that that adds to some of the, the weird sort of, I don't know, masochistic almost pleasure you get from seeing him strut around and beat up a hippie or, you know, like just shoot some guy in the back. You ask me why I love her? Well, give me time. I'll explain. Have you seen a Kansas sunset or an Arizona rain? You know, it, it still somehow... Uh, is con- kind of like a soothing experience. <laughs> well, it's because I think that it's someone who is so comfortable in their worldview, I guess. Like, I, I, I mean, I see what you're getting at, and it's it's sort of hard to put into words also why I, I do find it appealing, because I definitely didn't used to. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> you watched a bunch of John Ford movies and got brainwashed like everyone else. Yeah, I mean, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably part of it. But yeah, there's like this security in the way they see the world. And even though it's not a worldview I share, I think that it's possible to either find beauty or things that are appealing about it because it's it's just it's honest in its own way. It's, you know, Wayne is like starring in all these things that, you know, for better or worse, there are elements of them that he just like truly believes in. And even if he's like, so he's very relaxed when he's uh, engaging with those things because it's not like he's like straining to, to make this point. He's just like embodying a set of virtues or an image that he's like come to define and then so that when he's like moving through these films there's all these like assumptions that go with it and then you're just like sitting with them and yeah it becomes like a bit it's like like we were talking about with space cowboys is this warm blanket um yeah well i think like the that sort of what you're talking about that sort of like honesty quote unquote which like i would call like an honest delirium right (laughs) you know yeah Yeah. Uh, exactly but it's the same honest like you know delusions of grandeur that Ronald Reagan had uh-huh. it's this particular kind of american 
ideology that they were so certain and sure of and spinning these yarns and myths and and embodying it right uh which is different which is even different though from like um like nixon yes he was extremely insecure yes you know nixon was like an incredibly paranoid and insecure person and some of that of course like pervades this film but the duke is just trying to rise above it you know like he's he is more in that sort of I guess you could say that kind of like delirium, like he is not insecure. He is 100% secure of who he is. And I think that's why the film is sort of a nice or an interesting to me, like kind of counterbalance to the whole like Nixon era of paranoia, because he is just sort of like trying to just, just turn his back on it and just be like, you know, the corruption, the red tape, the bureaucracy, this era is kind of all, you know, it's bullshit. Yeah. It's, to him, it's simple. Right. Just like that's what they say about Reagan. You know, it's like taking a complicated problem and simplifying it, you know, uh, ideologically. Yeah. As a counterpoint to like, you know, the paranoid era. Right. There are no loose threads. He figures it all out. Yes. There's no sense of conspiracy or if there was a conspiracy, like every party involved has been like defined and categorized and we know exactly. And justice is served in the end when he mows down both sides. (laughs) I mean. And it should be pointed out too that like his, his security in beliefs and his attempt to simplify this thing is actually like incorrect in the movie for like 90% of the movie. Like he's so, you know, he's so convinced that it's Santiago, you know, that did this thing. And it turns out that it wasn't actually directly Santiago, the, the importer exporter, but you know, again, his like superiors are like, no, it's political. It's the radical leftists. You know, they're the sort of like Nixon paranoics. And he's just like, you fucking idiots. It ain't that. It's this <laughs> swarthy drug dealer guy, you know, and he's just trying to simplify everything. But of course, he's ultimately wrong, but still sort of stumbles into, you know, yeah, gunning down everybody, I guess, and like solving things and tying everything together. But again, like it's it's so funny to me because <laughs> compared to like other, you know, police investigation films where you really feel like, man, they really earned that. Like, he doesn't really earn the outcome that he gets in this film no at all. Way. He kind of burns people. He leaves a lot of people out to hang. He kind of, like, fucks up a lot. But but still, like, yeah, it comes out on top and then plays it off as, like, I knew it all along, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that confidence, you yeah, know? Yeah, and then everybody's kind of like, damn, you are the, the man. Like, you got to come back to the force. And again, what's interesting comparing it to something like Dirty Harry, you know, Dirty Harry is interesting because it ends on this incredibly cynical note. And I, why, I, you know, I think it's the best of the, the, the entire series because he throws his badge after he guns down, you know, Scorpio, and he tosses his badge because he's like, now fuck all that. But of course, it's like immediately <laughs> like done away with because the next film, he's like back on the force and Dirty Just Harry stays like a cop. Yeah. But right, yeah. But like the ending of this, like he takes his badge back, you know, like he's sitting there and Eddie Albert's like, boy, we were wrong about you. Hey, we need you. We need a guy like you. Your 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 sureness. We need that. And he actually accepts the return. He takes the badge back and is like, all right. And he's like, hey, there's a bar over there. Let's go yeah. get a drink. <laughs> And it ends on that note where he, he, in spite of all of his bullshit, you know, of saying like too much red tape, the bureaucracy, my, my superiors are as corrupt as these, you know, criminals and all this stuff. 
he just goes back to being a fucking tool of the system, like, at the end of it all. Well, I think that's what, you know, another interesting part of this film is, I guess, I, you know, I hadn't seen it before, so I think guess I was maybe expecting something a little more right-wing, and it is tempered, you know, by this sort of, like, liberal faith-in-the-system kind of narrative, because as you find out, it's indicated at one point in the movie that, like, maybe all of these cops, including the captain, Eddie Albert, is in on this, like, drug-stealing distribution scenario. But, of course, in the end, it's a bad apples narrative, right? There's two detectives and a couple other guys who were, you know, doing this scheme, but not all the cops, right? But it does play with your sort of expectations as to where that's going to go, only to try and reinforce, you know, your faith in the system by going, oh, look at John Wayne is, you know, joining joining the police force again. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at the end of the day, they're good, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, um, while flirting with these yeah. potential ideas that it's, like, corrupt all the way to the top, yeah. mm -hmm. but then it isn't, you know? And I thought for a second, because you guys know Eddie Albert was uh, a communist, or at least uh, a socialist of some kind, and uh, I was wondering, like, how they were going to play that in the film if they really were going to hang him out to dry, but they didn't. No. I mean, again, like, you know, you see interviews with actors who talk about their experience with him and, and so many of them like express that, uh, that, but that like they never felt direct animosity from him, even though they would have open discussions about their politics. Like, you know, they said like the Duke was always a nice guy. He never was like, Oh, you're a fucking liberal. I'm not going to speak to you. You're a piece of shit. You know, you're a commie bastard. Now don't get me wrong. The Duke, like, you know, ruined a lot of like you know, <laughs> leftist careers and lives, you know, but that kind of amiable disagree, disagreement kind of situation is even presented in the film. And one of the, you know, the biggest groaners of the film is when uh, he's on his boat. And uh, I think it's uh, his partner's wife, right? Uh, says like, how do you stand at this living in solitary? Oh, you get used to it. Water or soda? Doesn't matter. You should get yourself a woman. She'd at least straighten up for you. Not enough for him anymore. Women's lib, you know. Oh, and he's kind of <laughs> smiling in this bizarre, just like, you know, clearly he doesn't agree with women's lib, but he's going to laugh it off uh, it very, you know, casually, like, hey, it's no big deal. You know, women these days. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. <laughs> it's so it, weird. It, it no, is. Totally. <laughs> it, totally. But, you know, it's so funny that you point that out, too, because there is a scene in the film where, and I think it's my favorite scene in the movie, uh, looking back on it, where he gets used by a woman. Uh, there's this, there's this, this, this like sort of sequence where uh, he meets this woman Myra, who associated with his partner, and Myra is this like bartender waitress who loves cocaine, who loves cocaine, who's very over the hill. And again, in the weird sort of like way this film kind of plays out, there's like this scene where he brings this woman cocaine, and he's giving her cocaine so that she'll like open up and talk to him about the case, which again for like. You know, this idea of him as some sort of like, 
you know, absolute law and order guy, like you don't really see that because he's like, he's offering cocaine to a woman, right. you know, he's like, he's doing what he's got to do to get the case solved. Cause now this is of course the gritty seventies, you know? So he's like bringing this woman cocaine and he's trying to get her to talk. And she's this like faded beauty, this sort of really gnarly old waitress, uh, played by Colleen Dewhurst. She's got a real gnarly voice. Yes. Yes. Like just so many years of just smoking cigarettes and drinking <laughs> gin, you know? Um, but she really like, embodies this character with a really like kind of touching humanity as this sort of like faded beauty who's been lied to by so many men promised romance and just a a one night stand but she totally flips the tables on the duke in this really great scene where she's just like well you know maybe if we go to bed together i'll give you the information you need and the duke is like oh boy and he's like (laughs) okay and he goes to bed with her and they're like they it's implied that they're like banged you know and then in the morning he gets up and he's like bringing her coffee in bed and he's like so how about that information she's like oh i don't have any (laughs) (laughs) got him and she's just and she says to him you're the detective detects <laughs> he's like gosh shit. yeah you know yeah she's she's probably the closest thing to a character that resembles someone from police beat you could even say too yeah. like kind of this like real you know like faded beauty someone who's sort of like got cast off on the outskirts you know another sequence i really love in relation to you know you're talking about that groaner where he's talking about woman's lib in relation to like his his ex-wife and then like getting used it's it's a really nice reversal when he has to go to his ex wife and ask her and like her new partner for money at their oh, like incredible they've got like this incredibly fancy mansion like in seattle this like beautiful property and they're hosting this big party and he kind of like sulkily arrives and says like i need five thousand dollars like i need to borrow five thousand from you because at this point since he is like no longer a police officer he needs funds in order to like get information from all of his snitches that's like and his uh, pinch his pension's not gonna pay out for three weeks so he's like and of course because he doesn't ask this guy for money he's like i want a loan yes you the know? duke the duke the duke does not <laughs> no believe in welfare. charity absolutely no, no way no cuz then even when he is granted the money without any issue you know the, her her new husband's like oh yeah of course it's like maybe back when you can and john wayne pulls out like a slip of paper confirming like the funds are going to be transferred to you on this date like it's coming directly from my pension like this is the way i want to do it like there's there's no yeah. we're not fucking around i prefer it this way mm-hmm. yeah and then that scene is also then bookended by a really strange um and this is like kind of you know very much like old man cinema uh, energy where that strange encounter with his daughter where <laughs> i can't tell if the screenwriters or john sturgis like saw her as a nine-year-old but it's clearly like a 17 or 18 year old woman playing i thought like 24 it, it, potentially maybe. she could she <laughs> yeah. could be in her 20s but she plays the bit as if she is like a child like hello ginger oh. <laughs> hi mom hi sweetheart wow look at this 99 out of 100 i'm a genius yeah i got a couple of tickets to the sunday basketball game how about it gee dad jane invited me to her house at the marina 
It's her birthday, and she's having a boy-girl party. My first one. Well, then you'll have to go to Janie's. I'm going to my first boy and girl party, Daddy. And she's, like, hopping around with her pigtails. Like, I was waiting for her to be like, Mom, can you buy me some crayons that I can use in class tomorrow? And she's, like, really badly ADR'd as well. Mm -hmm. So, like, that whole sequence is is really fucking weird but i do love yeah he's just like totally cucked by this rich guy but he's like you know i got this contract for a loan like man what a weird scene one other one other guy i want to talk about um from McHugh is and i'm gonna probably pronounce his name incorrectly too but al Ledieri, um you know who does play santiago we lost him very soon right he died in like 75 from a heart attack i believe this is one of his last roles why do we not have actors like him anymore no. i know such a such an amazing what heavy. the fuck yeah such I was presence. like laughing, you know, you were just mentioning you like listing off late Wayne titles and mentioning like Branigan. And I was like, you, there's there's no movies that come out these days with a title like Branigan, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, nor should they. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but no. Yeah. I mean, his his performance as Santiago is super interesting. And just that character is in general, too, because he is positioned so early on as this obvious villain. And then the film subverts that. By making it, you know, like, sure, he's, like, running drugs, but he's not responsible for this assassination or, like, everything that's going on in the film. He's not this grand puppet master. He's just a man who's doing his work on the port. It should be pointed out, too, that Santiago uh, himself gets ripped off by the cops. Because there's mm -hmm. that great scene where, again, when, you know, McHugh is, like fucking Santiago's dirty, you know, and he breaks into his office when he's now a, you know, private investigator and Santiago gets the drop on him with all these drugs on the table, all these bags of cocaine. And he's like, you interrupted my coffee. Have some. Well, thanks. Come on now, relax. One spoonful or two? <coughs> two. It has been my observation that policemen like their coffee sweet. Sugar. All of it. Sugar! We've stolen sugar! Do you understand what's happened? A switch has taken place. And where? Where else but the police department itself? Actually, I find it quite charming. I arrange a robbery, a very difficult robbery, stealing from the police itself. But before I can steal from them, they steal from me. My heart bleeds for you. If you're bleeding, it's for yourself. Your people are the violators. Proof again of how unfair things are. The advantage always lies with the people on the inside. So he like lets McHugh go and they have this weird kind of moment where it's almost like, are they now allies? Because Santiago was just a sort of like 
quote, honest businessman yeah. who, who got ripped off himself. Like, and there's an interesting reversal, too, with him with uh, an early sequence that sort of subverts like a traditional expectation of the police film where John Wayne, uh, when he does finally get the call that his partner is dead and like di- didn't survive, died in the hospital, he sees Santiago in like a bar or a restaurant and he decides to just like beat the shit out of him and like put him in a <laughs> stranglehold, smash his face into a mirror. And it's one of those sequences that would have been casually put into a cop film as the cop acting on impulse and instinct and like kind of being correct you know like going after the bad guy because he knows in his gut that like he's the man responsible but then this film makes it clear that like no that was just john wayne as a creaky old police officer assaulting santiago like when he had no cause to you know Yeah. Puts him in the urinals, mm-hmm. right? Makes a makes a wise crack. Doesn't he say, yeah, he's like, he's taking a shower. And he's just like <laughs> he's just laying in a urinal. <laughs> wow. There are a lot, yeah, there's a lot of like, dare I say, like Schwarzenegger-esque uh, you know, punchlines yep. in this movie. Mm, I didn't think about that, but that's a really that's an apt comparison. <laughs> One thing I want to mention too, just a thought I had, is there is, you know, the, the hippie angle, the sort of culture angle is like a red herring. And it sort of fails in that regard to like meaningfully integrate that stuff. But there's a scene where, of course, it's like John Wayne goes to the nightclub, Uh to the disco or whatever. Right. (laughs) And it's like supposed to be this like radical juxtaposition. But really, it's just kind of like a pretty quick scene. And I was thinking about like the treatment that that got in, say, like point blank when Lee Marvin goes to the nightclub. And that's really like reveling in this clash of like old and new and Hollywood icons. And this, it's just like him harassing a pimp, and then he and then he leaves. But it, it's just amazing <laughs> yeah. to like see John Wayne in like a purple lit nightclub. You know, there's something like just the vibe of that is is so weird. Yes, and it, it makes him look ninety three years old. Like, he does. I mean, there's a lot we've talked about bits in this movie where he looks his age, but like, man, when he like struts into that nightclub he he really looked like a fucking geriatric (laughs) there was like one particular close-up late in the film that when it like cut to the tired john wayne molly just did her best you know attempt at a john wayne impression was just like is this movie over yet i need a nap (laughs) (laughs) again i i think what makes this film really interesting this week uh particularly for me is is as we've already sort of buried the lead like the ways that it communicates spiritually with police beat Mm -hmm. you know and i was like as i was watching it i was again i was like you know thinking about the two cops because i i watched them back to back uh because i think that's now increasingly like the best way to sort of do these pairings is just like just go right into the next one you know because i feel like they're talking Um, to each other yeah absolutely and and in in this case you know i was again i was thinking about like you know the figure of of you know the duke as a cop and and z as a cop in in uh in police beat and you know what i found really interesting was like again just taking a, a a you know a bigger almost philosophical uh look at the two of them and their experiences what's funny is that you know in 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 this film he believes on a certain level that he is just surrounded by crime but relatively speaking there aren't a lot of crimes taking place in this film. There's really just sort of like the one. And otherwise, Seattle seems like a pretty sleepy town, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just this one case and this one bad apple. And you just, you, you 
deal with it. Clue Gulager. Right. But like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like the Duke is just so, you know, on a high alert all the time, you know, on edge, you know, that's the way it's got to be. Whereas in police beat, like <laughs> Seattle is just presented as this like crime ridden, postmodern, you know, <laughs> yeah. Bush era hellscape where there's just crime taking place everywhere. And it's just like a constant sort of series of, of, of infractions and murders and disappearances and assaults and suicides and all these things. And yet Z is totally oblivious to it all. Right. Relatively speaking, you know, he's just thinking about his girlfriend. Like he couldn't be bothered by all these fucking crimes on a certain level. Yeah. I mean, well, we spent all this time talking about the idea of John Wayne presenting this like image of like security and like righteousness and him like having a distinct idea of law and order and police beat is reveling in, you know, or finding the beauty in insecurity. Right. It's a very different, officer it's a very different way of looking at the world there's just endless poetry and beauty in this man's insecurity and so much of those collisions uh are where this film is drawing all of its power from and i think you mentioning that it turns seattle into this like postmodern hellscape well i guess not hellscape but at least like a postmodern like crime just like crimes endless and happening constantly um, just a constant hum you know yeah absolutely and i think like that element Paired with his detached quality is what makes the film so unique and incredible. Um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting specific juxtapositions with his narration and the crimes. And maybe we could just like sort of hit on some that stuck out to us. Because, again, it's sort of hard to like think, you know, this film doesn't have like a very clear, you know, three act narrative that you would find (laughs) in McHugh. It's a little harder to like think about like, okay, what order should we go through these? But I think one that really stuck out to me is he wanders into this apartment or like this loft and there's all this blood on the floor and he's like following a blood trail until he reaches like a bloodied body that's like either under a sink or under a cabinet and you don't see the head but you could see they're still alive and like they're you know they're moving or breathing in a very uncomfortable way and it's at that moment that his his narration finally reaches something like it becomes extremely intimate and he is almost even addressing like the sexual nature of his insecurity Security, and he's talking about, am I, am I touching you right? And like, am I making you feel good? When he's like thinking about his girlfriend. You know, the, I was with the film up until that point, but that I felt was when it really clicked for me, where it's like he's looking at like the bloodied mess of a crime scene and he's thinking about like, am I satisfying my girlfriend sexually? Am I like providing <laughs> what I need uh, or what she needs, you know? Uh, like can I offer that or is it just gonna be Jeff like this fucking guy that she's out (laughs) camping with yeah yeah I don't know maybe that could be like an open question unless you want to respond to that but like if there were any particular juxtapositions between specific crimes and the things he was talking about that really stuck out to you well I think I mean all of them because like the the thing uh, that you know was was sort of painfully obvious to me this time around is how much of the film is wrapped up in Z's subjectivity and not just in 
the voiceover and the images we see of him imagining what his girlfriend is doing on this camping trip, right? But also that the film's style and colors and framing and lighting are all changing with his inner Mm -hmm. journey and subjectivity because as his girlfriend suddenly goes on this camping trip with Jeff and the the film has all these filters it's it's like very blue blue, and it gets dark and it's like dark blue and we're talking like the whole goddamn image like and Mm -hmm. silhouettes and like everything's at dusk and as he's like becoming more insecure the film is like literally getting darker and darker and he's like trying to contact Rachel his girlfriend he gave her a cell phone and he keeps like calling he's like checking his messages he wants to hear from her and he doesn't and he just keeps spiraling and we hear this in his voiceover But then he does hear from her. She gives him a little call, a voicemail. Yeah, and it cuts to him riding in the sunny parks. Smiling. Smiling. Uh, And there's, yeah, there are a lot of visual juxtapositions like that that correspond to his mood and to his subjectivity. Because as, you know, again, throughout this film is intercut with all these just crimes, but there's just like beautiful parks. He's by the sound. He's riding his bike on these amazing trails. And this film's compositions are like out there. They're they're great. Widescreen, like amazing. And it's where know? it's really where the poetry comes in, you yeah. know, the the sort of like double meaning of the title, you know, police beat, police beat is in poetry, you know, that mm-hmm. this film, it's not trying to present like the detective story, you know, in, in the sort of literary traditions of, of something like Raymond Chandler or Jim Thompson, you know, things like McHugh, right. That are, that, that, that's where they find their, their source material, you know, in, in like hard boiled detective stories and literature or Westerns, you know, but this is, is rooted in poetry. This is rooted in not storytelling, but, but image making, you know, and how how simply, like you're saying, one of these like well-crafted images with filters can say so much without having to provide a, a plot, you know? It's, it's really about feeling more than it is about, um, you know, intellectualizing crime or how to solve crime, you know? Yeah, or it's, at least like direct cause and effect with everything. Yeah. And I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's really true for this film and something that I think a lot of um, like lesser like American independent cinema struggles with is just like beautifying the images and like using filters in just like this way to like make it look a little bit unique but there is so much conscious decision making going on with the color and the way everything is like cut together I mean you know you were talking about like when things are looking really grim with his thoughts and everything is it can reaches like this very dark blue that blue itself is quite similar to the blue on his computer screen when he's like actually writing these police reports yes. and they both share like this this darkness right like and again this is what I was talking about with the idea like when I was doing just the brief intro it's like the where the external world like these crimes his notes his actual police reports from his police beats are becoming like reflections of his inner world and the same thing is happening with the images in the film and I think yeah the connection to poetry is really key there because that's the way they're using color and light um, 
in the film. And you know, in in a sense, like this is, uh, it fits so well in with something that you know. Boardwell wrote about that sometimes I talk to like my film students about uh you know Boardwell in talking about like post-classical cinema and stuff like that you know he he talks about the importance of the setting commenting on the action and you know how something that should sound so simple is often so overlooked in so many fucking movies and this is like the taken to the extreme you know where mm-hmm. the setting comments on the actions and the setting comments on the characters uh because it, it's so so powerful in the way that it pulls us into his his you know yes on a certain level like yeah his paranoia but also just like how he fucking feels, right? How he fucking feels. And and we feel that way, you know? We feel the same sort of gut-wrenching sense of of loss and depression and loneliness, you know, because of the settings. Uh, and, you know, Seattle, in, you know, from what I've always heard, like part of the jokes about Seattle throughout, you know, my life have often been that it's this sort of like, gray depressing place already (laughs) but this film like takes it even further right whereas like you get a little bit of that in McHugh you know you kind of see at a certain point well it looks it sure looks windy over there by the sound you know it doesn't like have that same sense of like foreboding you know of just this place Seattle the gray Pacific Northwest McHugh by comparison is a pretty sunny film yeah you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in part because they had to shoot a lot of day stuff because if you know anything about John Wayne, you know, the stories were that he was like a big alcoholic. And so sets uh, often had to be built around his drinking habits, which meant you had to get him early in the morning. Otherwise you weren't going to get very much out of him like yeah. later in the day. So like so much of McHugh takes place like in the, the brightness of, of a Seattle, you know, early morning, mid morning, something like that. But police beat is to me like so much more visually what I, you know, think I understand about Seattle as a place, Mm -hmm. what it looks like, what it feels like, you know, I felt cold watching this movie. Right. You know, and again, a lot of that is because of just the way he's choosing to visualize this and those feelings. Yeah. And I think that the loneliness really comes through with the fact that the film in a sense has so many and so few characters depending on how you look at it because really the only perspective we get of any like true emotion or feeling is with z and then the film is like completely overstuffed with local talent just playing all the the various criminals or denizens of seattle and we only get them in these like brief little snippets we're never really spending too much time with them and even when we're spending time with his girlfriend it is almost exclusively his perspective and his like imagining of her and their camping trip um it's of course undercut in a very like funny sequence when he gets a message from her revealing what actually went on on that disastrous camping trip where Jeff got way too high with the Vancouver pot that they bought and he just like went wild on the beach and disappeared (laughs) you know overnight and she couldn't find him you know the next morning he got Um, arrested for uh, getting into a fight at a karaoke bar over an Everly Brothers song (laughs) exactly (laughs) very 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 Seattle yeah you know in fairness to Z Jeff sounds like a pretty cool dude I definitely 
would have a good time hanging with Jeff. I oh, think. yeah, he seems way more fun to hang out with than Z. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> and the communist book club in the forest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then the only other character that I feel like uh, we get any sort of sense of um, is his partner on his yeah. beat. Um, who, I mean, I guess there's a lot to unpack there because he himself is almost a surreal presence. Um, and especially yes. by the end where he's sort of just literally starts falling apart, you know, taking off all his gear, taking off his like shoes and gun and just like surrendering his authority. Yeah, they're both romantics, mm-hmm. you know, but Z is the sort of like pessimist and his partner is this like irrepressible optimist in the face of everything, you know, like Z can't help but go to just, you know, the, the worst possible scenario from like the get go. Like the minute his girlfriend like says she's going to this trip, he's like, she's going to fuck this guy, Jeff. You know, he's just going to these terrible places. Is it me? Am I the problem? I met her parents. I eat their food. I pay for everything. I mean, I've been good to her. Is it something I said? Is it something I did? Is it something I didn't do? Is it me? Whereas, like, the partner who sort of becomes enamored with, I guess, just falls head over heels in love with this sex worker, Mary, this sort of, like, street hustler figure uh, who is, you know, addicted to to drugs and, you know, uh, selling herself and um, at one point even sort of just, like, abandoning her child uh, in a very, like, very, like, heavy scene. Uh but his partner just like falls in love with her. He's just enamored with her. And, you know, there's like a, even a point where he's, he's saying like his partner in again, like you're saying a very surreal moment, like they're standing on this like barge and his partner's like, what do I need a condom for? What am I trying to protect myself from? Whatever she has, I want more of it. Listen, man, you don't want to do this. Trust me, you don't want to do this. I'm from Alaska, man. This is everything that I've ever dreamed about. You know, like, he just, like, he can't see where Z, of course, immediately is going. Like, dude, she could have, God knows what, she's a sex worker and she doesn't seem very safe. And, you know, she's living on the street and saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And and his partner just, like, does not care. I'm more foo. You know, yes, yes, in a sense. that's a really loaded moment, too, where when he does reveal, like, why would I wear one? Like, why, why would I? And he, like, reaches out and is essentially like pointing at all the mountains as if, like, that's yeah. the answer to his question. <laughs> um, and that's a really beautiful moment, too. He's like, look at this. Like, yeah. Uh, one thing we should point out, too, in relation to this film is the sort of origins of its, like, conception. And it was written by Charles Mudede, who's a very very notorious Seattle writer who's written for uh, The Stranger, the alt-weekly there for a long time. And he used to have a column uh, called Police Beat, which was, yeah, the sort of like alt-weekly crime column. And Mudede, through his connections with the police department as a reporter, uh, got access to their files. And so it's revealed that the, you know, in the end credits, it's revealed that uh, all the crimes were witnessing in the film were real and happened and taken from the files and from, you know, Mudede's research and his experience uh, 
you know, just as a reporter and as a journalist. Uh, so that ad- adds a whole other, like, yeah, just like unsettling layer underneath, right? It's not just that all these, you know, these depraved scenes are intruding on the film, but they're real, you know? And that's what makes them so... The fact that they are real is one of the things that obviously distinguishes them so much from the way crime exists in McHugh as this neat little thing that all makes sense. Um, Because so many of the crimes in Police Beat are just completely perplexing, or at least like there doesn't seem to be this logical cause for so many of them i mean you got a guy who the cause is always removed for the most part Mm -hmm. you know you see like a two neighbors who like disagree over a surveying like line between their property but anyway yeah but yeah like you've got a guy who just wanders into a grocery store rips open packages of meat and just starts eating the raw meat and it's like what do you what you want john wayne to explain what the hell is going on here like well i love how it's like reflected too again in z's life because when he's like you know, typing these police reports and they start to start to like ominously and poetically reflect his own life, right? Because he writes, uh, no one in Seattle can help this man. He is in a lonely place and all that stands between him and harm's way is the thick padding of his bulletproof vest. Uh, <laughs> and it's like referring to this guy who just like strapped on a bulletproof vest. Yeah. Just like... Just, just like puts on body armor and just like storms into the streets like anticipating like a hail of gunfire or something. Like, yeah. But also again, the double meaning... Because he's also talking about himself, yes. right? You know, and the cop who wears a bulletproof vest and and faces the world, you know? I mean, it, it, there's so much play between... Uh, on the one hand, you could see it as, like, these things are all, yes, like, these kind of disconnected things, but but they're also presented as, as again, like, commentaries on him and his experiences and what he's feeling and what he's going through. I think it's... And, and why I refer to it as a sort of, like, postmodern hellscape, because, you know, something that I think... Um, I, I read once uh, by this, you know, sort of weird theorist dude named Lev Manovich, and he was like talking about part of, part of his view of like the postmodern condition, and it's it's also this desire to seek conspiracy, to seek a deeper meaning where there is none. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Whether it's like people's fascination these days with like the Illuminati or you know whatever the the strings that are pulling these things and and people's love of of conspiracy now, of course, in America today, taken to as we've seen like crazy <laughs> sort of like political ends, right? But but yeah, this idea that there is this sort of like you know conspiracy and deeper meaning and and we see a little bit of that in. Um, you know, Z, where where he's he's seeing this this thing that his girlfriend's going through, and he's trying to see it as like this sort of like conspiracy, and he's he's extremely paranoid about it. Like these things are happening, um, and again, his partner just being this guy that sort of like doesn't doesn't want to overthink things, doesn't want to overanalyze things, embraces, I guess for lack of a better term, that the the sort of chaos and lack of causality. You know that. I think as he progresses, like he starts to sort of come to terms with that lack of meaning. Well, and specifically because, you know, we should point out it's it's explicitly made clear in his voiceover that, you know, his girlfriend goes on this camping trip with Jeff. And he, of course, he has traditional values in the sense that he's like 
one man, one woman, yeah. right? He has that exchange with the girl who is offering blowjobs a dollar a pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's like, well, my boyfriend's coming to pick me up. And he's like, you have a boyfriend? Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, why are you screwing around? And then he says that, right? Where he's just like, I believe in like, you know, traditional. (laughs) Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, like part of the, you know, again, like this is a movie where there isn't really a plot per se, but it is leading to this extremely slight change in perspective for Z because uh, by the end of the film, he basically admits in his like last lines of voiceover that he goes like, okay, well, I'll just like learn to live with the three of us, I guess, you know? So like it's all these encounters are sort of breaking down his brain and breaking down like what he, yeah, you know, sees as acceptable or not acceptable. You know, he's clearly in love with this woman. Okay. So she likes Jeff and used to date him, you know, that doesn't mean we can't all be happy maybe, you know? So it is this really weird thing. Cause it's like all this extreme shit is happening and then there's like maybe a slight change in his mentality, but nothing more dramatic than that, right? right? Right. I mean, well, I guess you could say that him sort of surrendering himself to for whatever extent that he does, like things just sort of coming his way is like a huge shift in the sense that at one point in the film, he very explicitly says what he thinks the meaning of life is. I mean, he says to live is to solve problems. Can't that just be it? That's his comforting worldview is that like as long as I keep moving forward and solving problems on my beat to him, that's what the meaning of life is. I love I love his like comedic in that thing where he's like talking about the definition of life in the image. He's like tearing through this beautiful park uh, in the sun. And he's like, who am I? A problem solver. Why? Because I got all these problems. <laughs> it's like a two-bit stand-up, but it's like part of his philosophy earnestly. Oh, it's so amazing. Yeah. And again, like talking about the films in like communication, like uh, at least, you know, for most of the film, like he wants on a certain level to be that, you know, this idea of the cop as problem solver, as crime solver, as, you know, uncoverer of meaning of, of, you know, the tying of the, the loose threads, like. He, he believes that, you know, in the classic sense of, you know, yeah, that's what cops do. They solve crimes. But that's all throughout the film sort of, you know, challenged by, you know, his police reports that he has to fill out, his incident reports. And there's there's a lot of sequences where when he's filling out his incident reports, he's he's using the code investigate and release investigate and release right he's he's investigating and and coming up with nothing and just letting it go you know he shows up to solve a crime and then there is no presumable crime or the person doesn't want to press charges or it just sort of like fades away and disappears you know like there's the woman who some guy sort of just like comes into her home oh my god and and just like jerks off in front of her like pet parakeet or whatever (laughs) and she's just sort of (laughs) staring at him and then he leaves and and z is there and was like do you want to like should we find this guy press charges and she's like nothing to 
nothing to press charges against or whatever. I've got like, nothing. I, have, I got no complaints. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, right. Investigate and release. Like, <laughs> just let it go. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting because as we talked about, John Wayne is is and his persona is kind of like naive in, in so many ways. And I would say naive, of course, is like a very good way to describe Z. He's an immigrant sort of struggling with this culture clash. I mean, he's in fucking America. This is a fucked up place. And it's even like when it's introduced, there's a scene where you see him riding in a car with his superior and it's, he's just being talked down to and, you know, just sort of like, when am I going to get my patrol car? And, you know, his superior is just like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, clearly just this sort of like quota hire, but they don't give a shit about him at all. Yeah. Uh, and he's like just, they say like, oh, we love the perspective that you bring to the force or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And he does. I, I love too how he says, you know, he talks about this, about how like in, in his voiceover, we don't see it about meeting his girlfriend's friends for the first time. And they were all very, like, uncool with, you know, him being a police officer and talking shit about the WTO. Uh, calling him a pig. Yeah, calling him a pig. And again, he has no sort of, like, specific cultural context or historical context for some of this stuff. And he's just like, I just answered an ad in the paper. <laughs> I, You know, I got a green card. Like, I, I came over to work and I just, this was a job. And it is very interesting, again, the way that undercuts, you know, this film as a police film. I mean, this is as far from a, you know, what, what everyone calls copaganda, you know, like this film... It's just about this guy, and he himself is completely detached and isolated from the force and detached and isolated from certain ideological aspects of being a police officer. Mm -hmm. He's just got his own thing going on in this little world, yeah. biking around the parks of Seattle. Worrying you know. about Jeff. Yeah, worrying about Jeff, <laughs> who's fucking his girlfriend in the forest right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so very frequently on the podcast, right, Andy, you'll talk about um, Deleuze, and you'll mention, you know, are some of we've like had a few different protagonists that have been called like Deleuzean detectives or searchers and fanatics. I, I, yeah, and I think that something I was thinking about while watching this film was thinking about um, my favorite author Thomas Pynchon and how Z, in a way, in this like postmodern world of trying to make sense of conspiracies and kind of being isolated because of that search, he very much feels like what you know a quote-unquote protagonist from a pension novel he, he kind of reminded me of you know the the connection and v of the protagonist benny profane as a yo-yo his experience in police beat is very similar to that and yeah i just you know this film isn't i don't know if i would say it's like isn't particularly well known um but it's certainly you know it's it's a little underseen and like less accessible and to anyone out there listening if you are a, a fan of the works of thomas pynchon as i am i i found quite a lot to love in this um specifically that the search for meaning in a world that you define through a worldview of conspiracies and how that is a dead end but also somewhat of a liberating experience um and like the complicated factors that are involved with that search yeah, it's amazing how movies from like 2005 can just disappear. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I was I was trying to find some like I didn't have too much time to like look into some stuff, but I found like Dennis Lim being like, oh, this was the best film at Sundance 2005. 
And you're like, no one's ever fucking watched this movie again, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's a crime. Everyone should see this movie, Mm -hmm. you know? Robinson DeVore has made some other very interesting films as well, like The Woman Chaser, the adaptation of Williford, which has never been released on home video after having a, a festival run in the late 90s. It's like... What the fuck? You know, it just makes me so mad. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a crime we can't solve easily, dude. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I mean, like it does. Yeah, even thinking of again, I think it is it is helpful to think of police speed in that sort of postmodern kind of lens. You know, similar to something like Edward Yang's The Terrorizers, right, where you have a similar connected disconnected kind of thing going on where it's like yeah this is all related but like it isn't there's randomness there's you know again it's just this jumble also to your point ryan you know that i think there is to a certain extent meaning to be found in a meaningless search for meaning exactly yeah (laughs) right like and i think that's part of his his ultimate I guess you could say his journey or whatever is that that idea that okay well even if we can't solve it even if we won't find our meaning like I can find meaning within that release and you can learn the Lindy dance with your girlfriend yeah. as Z is planning to do yeah yes, yeah. yes. and I, I, love, I love that too yeah because he's trying to talk about like the ways because it does begin and you know part of we should say his paranoia and his insecurity doesn't just come out of nowhere. Like, at the beginning of the film, as she's getting ready to go on the, the trip, he talks about how they've been having difficulties, you know? Like, trying to connect, and and one of the ways that they were going to try to fix their relationship or, or get some more spice into it was through uh, Lindy dancing classes that they were going to take as a as a couple, but I guess she didn't show up to the yeah, she, well, she Yeah, she went camping with Jeff. Like, yeah. He was like, what am I supposed to do with this... Lindy dancing class. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love later on, you know, when he's reflecting on that. And it is kind of like ridiculous, you know, but he says, An African man does not take up Lindy dancing for the sake of boasting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like such a big deal to him that he's willing to make this like sacrifice to meet her on some other terms. I mean, it related to like when he hears that, you know, she leaves a message and says, you know, she's staying with this uh, Finnish communist in the forest. And there's like all these people reading books and she's talking about how she wants to come back and live around books with Z. And so he also is like, that sounds good. Books sound good. Uh, And he starts reading Lord of the Flies because it comes (laughs) up in one of his cases. And so he just... guy leaves like a very threatening message. Uh, Read Lord of the Flies. Yeah. To like an airport <laughs> maintenance like facility or something. Oh, that's a really good like Boeing reference, right? Because again, if you're going to think of like what Seattle is known for, right? Other than Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks, you go back to the post-war, you go to Boeing, right? And there's a great little bit where Z does his like Sully. There's like this like destroyed <laughs> plane and he's just sitting in it and be like, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Zakayatkin Shuttle, Fly 86. We're in Seattle, time is 12.30. I'll get you in New York in one hour and a half. 
and relax, nobody will die. <laughs> it's like this amazing sequence. But I love that his biggest takeaway from reading Lord of the Flies is that this is what a world would look like without police officers. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. The camera like zooms in on his face as he like wisely realizes like, ah, yes, I'm needed. Yeah. Because yeah. he read Lord of the Flies. Yeah. And, you know. I know it's a really popular discussion these days, uh, you know, defunding the police and abolishing the police. But, you know, Z might not be wrong about that. You know, the Lord of the Flies, you know, we don't want that. You don't want just, uh, everything being determined by who's got the conch shell. You know, I don't want that myself personally. But I guess I don't want John Wayne as <laughs> the other yeah. side. You know? yeah, like, no, no. So maybe there's a middle ground we can find here. You know? I think overall, like it's it's a really it's a really incredibly beautiful beautiful film, and and Marsh, you're right, like it's it it deserves to be seen. It really does, especially in the context of, you know, I'm making jokes, but of a lot of the conversations that people are having that we are having today about, you know, policing and and what the job should be, because on a certain level, like, you know, Z, he's not just some door kicking you know, radical beating, you know, macho guy. Like he, he does in a very idealistic way, like believe he is a, a public servant, yeah. you know, and he wants to genuinely like help people. And part of like his frustration at times comes from his, his own willingness to like go further than the demands of the job, uh, even sort of lay out for him. Yeah, know? most cops wouldn't wrap up that pigeon and throw it away as, as carefully as he did. Yeah, you know, he 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 seeks like connection in a lot of situations with the people that he encounters. You know, and even in that scene that I mentioned earlier, where you know Mary is just kind of like you know, sort of has like abandoned her child at this like you know hamburger shop or whatever, and then his partner's like, well, we'll just take the kid down to child protective services which is a very like cop like thing to do. And Z is like, no, we can't just abandon this child to like CPS. We, that's like taking it to child prison. Like what if, what if, what if I take care of the, the kid? What if I babysit a little bit? You know, like he, he genuinely like believes in like trying to improve the lives of the people around him. Yeah, well, he's got worth. like village mindset, you know? I mean, I think that's so important in terms of like how he's reacting is that he does have like, he values the people in his community, like a guy from Africa. Now he's in Seattle and he's trying to like bring that vibe, but he's met with, coldness and disconnection and libs uh bombing <laughs> down hills and almost running him over and then that's i mean that's like of course one of the great you know goofy scenes as we mentioned earlier the fuck bush guy yeah but this mm -hmm. is such it's such a grotesque it's like the perfect grotesque caricature of like the seattle lib circa 2004 where he's just like the biggest piece of shit, like screaming at Z about George Bush. And Z's like, what? I don't know what's going on. Oh, like yeah. And the guy's like, everybody wants him dead. And he goes like, he goes, who's everybody? Like, he's like, I don't get, what are you talking about? And in the background, there's like uh, kites being flown. It's crazy, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just every scene is so rich with, yeah, like these little details and nuances that, yeah, it's just such, an, it's such a great film, really is, you know. I do want to point out just one thing that I meant to mention, which is that, like, 
in addition to what we talked about in terms of like the poetry of the visual aspect of Police Beat, I think the soundscape, if you want to call it that, uh, is again something that's worth mentioning because part of that sort of like postmodern hellscape vibe you described, Andy, comes from this creative and layered sound design, which is not just using, of course, his voiceover and cutting back and forth, but it's like a film full of water and waves and radios and voices in other rooms and voices off screen and people screaming and typing and there ha- there is a very like ominous synthesizer score throughout the movie as well that adds to this kind of yeah ominous and even romantic to a certain extent vibe of the film this yeah this like passion in its yeah in its soundscape it just really impressed me the second time around just all the little sound cues and details from mm-hmm. his walkie to uh, again things off screen it's, it's you know? very sensory yeah you know? yeah it's all a bunch of audio that's a, a natural result of the environment there and then also that music is like local artists so it's again it's just like all these like homegrown qualities to both the visuals and the soundscape and the performers everything in it which is why it just feels like such a canonical you know seattle title we love proper regional cinema at the gauntlet don't mm-hmm. we folks yeah all right marsh well it was um your pick this week and uh it was a lot of fun it was a it was very amusing you know as we're starting to get to know the area driving around and looking at all these new things and uh, encountering spaces we were not familiar with and then coming home popping on the tube and um seeing the exact same stuff uh on screen again in, in a very similar way as we saw it. So that, that that's quite fun. Thanks for helping us uh, get to know the area um, a little bit better. So, um, yeah, I mean, you talked about the storied history of Seattle cinema. Um, what is one of your favorite Seattle films? I think one of my favorites, I would have to say, uh, is the 1985 Alan Rudolph film, Trouble in Mind, starring Chris Christopherson and Keith Carradine, and it's uh, it actually doesn't take place in Seattle. It takes place in a fictional other world called Rain City, <laughs> in that sort of surreal Alan Rudolph way, uh, and everything's very kind of like '80s new wave inspired and dreamlike. But it's all shot in Seattle and around, and it's just a very moody, you know, kind of. 80s Alan Rudolph jam. It's a, it's a fantastic film where I think it's like Chris Christopherson gets out of prison. Uh, he was like a cop who killed someone, and he hangs out at this diner in Rain City and becomes involved with its inhabitants, who include Keith Carradine, who's freshly come to town and falls in with some gangsters, notoriously played by Divine, uh, not in drag as the gangster in the film. And it's, yeah, it's just this sort of like meditation on love and vibes in the Pacific Northwest. It's a really uh, fantastic film I would tell anyone to watch. Yeah, it's an incredible film. I almost picked it. Um for this week, uh, just because I had I had watched it not too long ago, but it hasn't been able to like leave my mind. Um, it's yeah. just like such an incredible film. Um, but once I knew that Andy picked McHugh, I couldn't resist the pairing of yeah. of our two two different cops. You had know? to double it up. 
Yeah, the double cura- the pleasure. The, the curator in you just just you couldn't hold it back. You know? Yeah, you had to <laughs> you had to go for the double feature. Right. <laughs> Next week it is Andy's topic. What do you got for us? Well, as um, I think some of you would know about uh, us, and as I previously mentioned before on the podcast, uh, Marsh and I are both uh, faculty members at DePaul University's School of Cinematic Arts. And we just, you know, we kind of had a, a crazy week because we just started uh, the, the, the new school year. So it was a, a really just a hectic week back in, um, you know, pandemic uh, education, you know. Yeah, but uh, so I just was thinking about that. And since we're headed there, why not? Let's go back to school. So boys... Take me back to school. Let's go. I love it. (laughs) As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies, or you can send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. You should have a light or a reflex. What is it, the end of the month? You have to make your quotas? This is fucking unbelievable. What a fucking waste of the taxpayers' dollars. It doesn't go to parks, it doesn't go to education, it doesn't go to the ocean. It goes to this great big fucking war machine that our country has become, and we're not going to take it anymore. It's coming. It's out there. There's going to be a fucking civil war. Half this country has decided that it's the only way to get out of this shithole we call our government. So you're telling me you don't like nothing about our government? No. What about our prison? Do you like it? Bush is fucking evil. He's a corrupt murderer. Do you know how much money he's wasted on these wars? $1.9 trillion over the next five years. So let's talk about this. What do you think we should do to make this world a better place? Give me an idea. Someone should kill Bush. What? Everybody wants him dead. Who's everybody? I would do it. You would kill the president? Fuck yeah, if I had the chance. Have you been drinking today? No. Have you been smoking? No. Listen, it's time for you now to be quiet. If you don't know about the law, I will tell you right now. Threatening the life of the president is threatening my life too. There is a direct chain of command, and I will hurt you. 